Join me in First John, First John three four through ten. Sermon text today. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that we, as your children who are in this time and in this place, would be ones who are filled with the knowledge of your will, so as to walk in wisdom and understanding and living lives pleasing before you. We ask that you accept the works of our hands, feeble as they are, not on their own merits or on their own purity, but on the merits and purity of the work of Christ. May we take on the joyous and difficult task of righteous living in Christ with zeal, knowing this is who you have redeemed us to be by the power of the Holy Spirit work within us. Give us the strength, we pray, to press on to the end in the light of the hope of glory, we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. First John. Uh, and we'll read from 28 through 310, 228 through 310. And the, the message this morning will focus on verses 4 through 10 of chapter 3. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I think this passage is simultaneously confusing. And simple. I think sorting out the details and the structure of this passage is somewhat difficult, at least for me. And yet, 
and this is a testimony to the, the clarity of Scripture, his main point shines through brightly. And the principle is the way we act comports with the inner reality of our hearts. If we are born of God, if we are his children, if we abide in Christ, we can expect to see ourselves practicing righteousness. And we can thereby confirm, make our calling and election sure. But if we are actually of the seed of the devil, we can expect our actions and the actions of those who are also of the devil to comport with that inner reality. Sin will be our modus operandi. So what John is doing is he's defining parameters for the Christian faith. He's drawing boundaries thus far and no farther. Those standing here are inside. Those standing there are outside. Which may seem like a harsh thing to do, but defined boundaries are actually loving. Ask any child who grew up in a home that had no boundaries. Boundaries are necessary for our flourishing. Boundaries call on those who are outside to come in, and they call on those who are inside to remain, and they call on those who are flirting with the boundaries to be very careful. It's like a hunter who's unsure of whether he's where he's supposed to be, whether he's on private ground or public ground. A map or a piece of signage can tell him and send him where he needs to be. In the same way, defining parameters clarifies for all parties where they stand, even if they thought they were in a different spot. In the case of John's readers, it's quite plain from reading First John that he believes them to be inside. He believes them to be Christians. And I can only pass along the same conviction about this group. Of course, I, I, I can't read hearts, and each of us should be willing to pause for a moment's reflection and to consider what John has to say here as he helps us to make our calling and election sure through this process. So today I want to break down the text by first looking at this principle that John has um, as he restates it in different words in different places here. And then I want to look at some of the reasons that he gives us that undergird this principle. So, beginning with the principle, John addresses this issue by identifying all humanity with one of two sides of the line. The ones who are in Christ, who are born of God, and the ones who do not abide in Christ and who are of the devil. He does this by using these words um, in the ESV, everyone who, or, or no one who, or whoever. And the evidence by which he makes this determination in this passage is purity, is righteousness. Sin versus righteousness. Are we sinful or are we righteous? And this is one of those three tests or measures or analyses that, that is in First John of belief, love, and obedience. And this is the, the, the obedience one again. We return 
to this. This is the moral measure by which we test where we stand. The principle he states first in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. I think this verse is actually kind of a key to the rest of of the passage. Um, If we understand what he's saying here, I think some of the the perceived challenges about this passage end up being resolved. Um, And on its surface, he's simply saying everyone in the category of those who practice sin is also in the category of those who practice lawlessness. And this, I don't think, is just a one-to-one sort of equal sign. Sin is lawlessness. That's a definition, although it's definitional. Uh, But as one commentator noted, that the, the context seems to suggest lawlessness is worse than sin. So I've been persuaded that lawlessness in this context is more than, more than, not less than, but more than just a disregard for God's law, but it's actually a, a more technical description of apostatizing sin. Sin that would put you outside the camp. This is lawlessness. If we back up, we remember this passage is in an eschatological, an in time context. Uh, back to chapter 2, verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And then verse uh, chapter three, verse two, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So remember, this is a, an eschatological passage still we're talking about. And if we back up even further, um, this Passages in the context of deceivers, which makes sense because John says in verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you. These deceivers are people John calls um, the Antichrist or Antichrists. In 2.20 or 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is some coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. I argued when we studied this, that, that section that John sees the Antichrist as, as beginning the fulfillment of the prophecies in Daniel about what we call, we call the end-time opponent who would come and he would afflict the church with, with deception. This figure in the Bible is also called the beast or false prophet, false Christ. Or particularly relevant and interesting to our our passage here, the man of lawlessness. The Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uses the term lawlessness uh, quite frequently in describing specifically apostate behavior of those who are outside. Leviticus 20:14. If a man takes a woman and her mother too, it is depravity. Uh, the, the word Greek word in the Septuagint, anima, lawlessness. It is lawlessness, and he and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity, lawlessness among you. Or Deuteronomy 31:29. For I know that after my death, Moses talking, you will surely act corruptly. He's predicting they're, they're not going to obey the law like they said they would. And that word corruptly, you will surely act lawlessly, anima. 
and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. So we see there, using the word anima, lawlessness, he's talking about their departure from the covenant. Jesus uses the word in, in a similar way in Matthew seven twenty-three, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In Matthew twenty four twelve, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So I really think that in this context, lawlessness is more narrow of a definition than just sin or breaking God's law, but actually it's apostatizing sin. Sin that moves you outside the camp with the filth and the refuse. I think this interpretation is strengthened by the fact that John actually uses the definite article here, the the word the. Um, It's actually more literally all the ones who do the sin also do the lawlessness. Thus then is the lawlessness. Uh, there, there seems to be a strong connection here between chapter 3, verse 4, and the somewhat confounding chapter 5, verse 16, which we'll get to when we get to, but I'll just read it for now. Uh, five sixteen. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, so an apostatizing sin, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. In that, that in context with the, I believe, apostasy or unbelief is the sin that leads to death. All that to say that John appears to have in mind here uh, is not just committing individual sins, but sins that apostatize the believer or move him outside the camp. And I think understanding this alleviates some of the potential confusion that that we may have about this passage. For instance, John says in verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either known him, seen him, or known him. So no one who abides in him, that's what I want to claim, keeps on sinning, which is what I do. So how do we fix that? To make the perceived problem just a little bit worse. I don't even agree with the ESV's translation here. They, I think, over-translate the present active verb saying, keep on sinning. I think it's better translated, no one who abides in him sins. And no one who sins has seen him or known him. Similarly, in verse 9, he says, everyone born of God does not practice sin. In verse 7, he says, The same thing in positive terms. He says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So you can see the problem. If John, what what John means is once you become a Christian, you'll become perfect. If you sin, you're out. Uh, then, Then you and me and the Apostle Paul who says, I keep on doing what I don't want to do. We're all out. We're, we're, we're all pulling on the oars together in the same ship 
sailing straight to the fires of hell. If we, if we sin, if that's what John is saying. Not only that, if that's what John is saying, John is very, very stupid. Because he said in chapter 1, if you say you have no sin, you yourself see. But if we understand him to mean that no one who is born of God or abides in Christ practices sin, like, like a doctor practices medicine or a lawyer practices law, that it's their chief output, their identity, such that they're marked out as lawless ones, ones outside the camp, then if we understand that's what he's saying, we can kind of take a deep breath of relief. I don't have to be perfect. I think we kind of know intuitively, too, what John is getting at. Uh, We know we'll never be perfect, and we know John is not saying that we have to be perfect. And we also know that connection with Christ through faith has inevitable and life-altering impacts. It will change us. We all do things that are inconsistent with our profession of faith. But when someone, particularly somebody we know well or we care about, they say, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, but their life is simply not showing any righteousness. Instead, their life is actually marked by sin. Sin is the defining expression in their life. We know it's not hard to pick out. That's, that's inconsonant. But for, for us, for the true believer, for the Christian... This moral measure is not oppressive. It's actually a comfort to us. Like Paul says in Romans 7, uh, we are extremely frustrated with our sin, such that we cry out like he does, who will deliver me from this body of death? But even that, that frustration shows us, we can honestly say, my life is bound up not in the pursuit of sin, doing what's right in my own eyes. I'm not a a lawless one. I'm striving after fellowship with God. I want to know him better. I hate my sin. I long for final freedom from sin. And I, I labor daily against the flesh to come into conformity to God's law. If we can honestly say that, we can, we can take comfort. Because we know that that's our heart posture. We know that doesn't come from inside of us. That comes from somewhere outside, an influence outside, namely God. I think Calvin nails what is sort of the common sense application or implication of John's principle. He says, but I have already said what not to sin means. John does not make the children of God wholly free from all sin, but he denies that any can really glory in this distinction except those who from the heart strive to form their life in obedience to God. So so here's the basic principle, is that our life comports with our inner reality. If we live for the practice of sin, it is evidence that we may be of the lawless ones, outside the boundaries of the people of God, But if our life is marked by the practice of righteousness, 
This is evidence that God has come and he has made us his children by changing our hearts and adopting us into his family. John grounds this principle in several reasons. I've grouped them into five here. Um, Why is it that sin and righteousness are evidence of our status with God? That's the reasons he's giving us to explain why is why why is sin and righteousness evidence of, of our position with respect to God? The first reason uh, is an incarnational reason. In verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, and then the reason in verse five, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin. Why, why did Jesus come? There's a juxtaposition here. Everyone who makes the practice of sinning is over here. But you, he says, you know why Jesus came. He came to take away sin. Again, how many people do we know who say, I'm in him. I'm a Christian. But their life is absolutely consumed with, with pleasure and self-defined law, doing what's right in their own eyes rather than pleasing the Lord. We, we know a lot of people like that. And again, a moment's consideration unveils the fabrication of their imagination. Really, you're in him. Every breath you're taking is in pursuit of the very thing he came to remove. That is sin. It's time to wake up. The writer to the Hebrews shakes the shoulders of those who are in a stupor in chapter 10. 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, as he has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You understand that's what we're doing when we say, I'm a Christian and then proceed to live a life consumed by sin is, is what he says, trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So the first reason is an incarnational reason. We know why Jesus came, and to live a life in pursuit of sin is inconsistent with, with understanding why Jesus came. Second reason why sin and righteousness evidence our position with God is the nature of Jesus. He continues in verse 5. He says, in him there is no sin. That's the nature of Jesus. That's who he is. He, he says basically the same thing about Jesus in verse 7. Um, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So he's the pattern. He's the paradigm for righteousness. In him there is no sin. This is also a repetition of what he already said in uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, 
you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And really all of this I see in in conformity with what some people have argued is the most basic fundamental principle in 1 John from chapter 1. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. So in Jesus there is no sin. Little brothers look up to their big brothers. They imitate them. They want to walk in their footsteps Um, as the oldest child. I don't know what that's like. But I wonder how many times as the oldest child, my own sinfulness, I, I led my brother or sister down a path they shouldn't have gone down. But Jesus, he is our elder brother. But our impulse to sin never comes from looking at him. He's the perfect elder brother, leading us, watching out for us, exemplifying obedience to our Heavenly Father. In him is no sin. This is the nature of Jesus. And even a more basic implication of the nature of Jesus as sinless connects us with the third reason, which is that we abide in Jesus. We abide in Jesus. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The vine bears fruit according to its kind. Um, He's talking about the fact, I believe, that we are mystically united to Jesus by faith in him. To see and to know, Calvin says, is basically a, a description of faith. We're united to Jesus by faith. If we're united to the vine, the expectation is that we will bear the fruit of the vine. Jesus says, every branch that does not bear fruit will be cut off and burned. The obvious place to turn here is Romans 6, uh, verse 5, 5 and 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The obvious implication and the necessary implication of our union with Christ, our mystical connection to him, union to the vine, is that we don't sin. Not with not perfection, but we're not enslaved to sin any longer. So without that vital connection to the source of life, any attempt to to walk in big brother's shoes, to use him as an example, is just is just taping apples to thorn bushes. It's not genuine. Only through a mystical life giving union with Christ can we begin to produce the fruit of the vine. And, And when we see that fruit, even in small measure, we should be delighted and encouraged because we know, again, that fruit does not come from our nature, but from Christ, the nature of the one in whom we abide. So the first three reasons is the incarnation. Jesus, we know why he came. The second is the nature of Jesus. In him there is no sin. The third is that we abide in Jesus. And the fourth is... The 
victory of Jesus. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is another incarnational response. We know why Jesus came. Jesus came to get rid of sin. Jesus came here to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews again says something very similar in 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus came to destroy the devil and his works. Sin is the devil's business. He's the first and most expert practitioner of sin. Remember what John said, sin is lawlessness. And the devil, even more than the, the man of lawlessness, is the lawless one. It was he who encouraged Eve to assume to herself the knowledge of good and evil. And he prodded them to take up for themselves the responsibility to distinguish between good and evil, right and wrong, in their own eyes rather than in God's eyes. And to practice sin is to follow, to inherit the family business of the devil. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy everything that he's been up to. The Greek word here for destroy is luo. Every first year Greek student knows this word because it's the one we use to learn verbs. And it's the word that means to loose or destroy. And I kind of like the word loose here. He came to loose the works of the devil. Like he's untying them, like he's unhitching the, the devil's pony from his post. Or like the devil's been crocheting a great big Afghan and Jesus comes along and just starts to pull that thread and unravel everything the devil is doing. But to, to snuggle up under that Afghan, to make yourself at home there, while also claiming to love the one who is destroying it, is an impossible contradiction. I love Jesus. I want to follow him. But I, I'm, I'm just mired in sin and I love it. That's in, in direct contradiction to what Jesus, what he says here, that, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And the fifth reason why sin and righteousness evidence our position with respect to God is, is what I'm calling paternity. Paternity, fatherhood. Who's your dad? Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. If a woman gets pregnant and has a baby and she doesn't know who the father is, she can go down and she can get a DNA test, a paternity test, and find out uh, who's the father of this, this baby. Um, but before DNA testing, what, what could you do? You could look at the child, observe the child, 
What does he look like? What are his mannerisms, his tendencies? What are his characteristic physical features? And it probably won't take long before the observation sorts out the question. And Paul tells us that not as natural born men prior to our redemption, everyone is born into one side, into the family of the devil. We don't usually think about it in those terms, but he says in uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So practicing sin is a pattern of life that is a distinguishing characteristic. It gives away our family heritage. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have spiritual rebirth through which you are made a child of God. John says categorically, no person who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. Or more literally, everyone born of God does not practice sin. I just want to reiterate, because it's important, and we can easily confuse this, that to practice sin is not to just struggle with sin or keep committing the same sin as a believer, or even to wrestle with sin over a period of time. Otherwise, John would not have said in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So to practice sin in this context, I think, make, is to make sin your MO, your driving force. Your, you practice it like a doctor practices medicine. It's the occupation of your life. So for John, if you draw a Venn diagram... Those who practice sin are in one circle, and those who are born of God are in another circle. So it's a bad Venn diagram, because there's no overlap. And that principle is what makes sin and righteousness a, a valid evidence to test paternity. That's why he says, in summary... By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And we'll actually talk about loving our brother as a, an evidence in the next passage because that's where John heads next. The way we live, sin and righteousness is a valid evidence to help us determine our status with God. Are we in Christ? Are we children of God? Or are we children of the devil? We might ask, why, why does this matter? Why is John saying this here? Is he trying to just sort of scare us straight? Or live more righteously or else? Well, 
No, obviously that's not the case, because without fail, righteous living is viewed every time in this book as the effect and not the cause of our new birth. It's the fruit of our new birth. We love in obedience because he first loved us. Now certainly this text does serve as a reminder to us to pursue a life ever more consonant with the reality that we are truly the children of the living God. That we are to be holy as as he is holy. Maybe we do need that reminder that the, the things we've been watching or the way we've been treating those that we love or the way we're making an idol out of work or out of out of rest or whatever it may be, that these sins are not consonant with our profession of, of Christ. Maybe we need that reminder. And the, and the reminder that the source of our sanctification is Christ and that it is in his power that we make progress. But I don't think that's why John is is making the distinctions that he's making. Why is John taking this time to to draw these careful parameters, the the outer limits of the Christian faith? And I go back to verse 7, where he says, he he has an imperative in verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived. By making these clear delineations, John is able to pastorally and simultaneously drive away the wolves and gather the sheep. To to inscribe a circle around the people of God as a boundary between saints and the world. Because the reality is we are in an in-time situation, as they were, dealing with the opposition to Christ, these antichrists. And, and the antichrist implies that some will walk away. That's what he says. So I would exhort you then, do not listen to those voices, and there are many and they're loud, that make little of sin. Who make sin a mere matter of self-made codes of ethics, or rather than divine law, or, or who think that to live licentiously is to live authentically, or whatever the argument is. Those who make little of sin, this is lawlessness, and from lawless men serving their lawless father, the devil. Sin is serious. So serious that the Son of God came and died to take it away and to destroy the works of the devil. And in so doing, by God's grace and for all who are born of him and abide in in the Son by faith, we get the extraordinary privilege of living life in the light in whom there is no darkness at all. Amen.